there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative types about how they do their thing, what goes into it, how they keep going through all the ups and downs. Today, my guest is Michael Asiello. He is an entertainment journalist. You've probably seen his byline in Entertainment Weekly and TV Guide. He had his own columns in both of those. He is also the executive producer of the new movie Spoiler Alert, which stars Jim Parsons and Ben Aldridge and Sally Field. It's based on his own memoir, Michael's own memoir, Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. It's about his love story with his husband, uh, Kit, and their journey after after Kit was diagnosed with cancer. It's a beautiful movie. I saw a screening of it. I thought it was so moving and warm and funny, and it gave me all the feelings, and it was so well done. So I was excited to talk to Michael all about it. But before we get to that interview, I'd love for you to consider becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. What is that? It's a collective of shows that I'm part of, and for $12.95 a month, you get my show early, and you get all these other great shows. You can learn about it at dnrstudios.com. And I also have a voicemail, so if you want to comment or question um, anything to do with the show, you can leave me a voicemail, and I might play it. That number is one 888 9653. All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with Michael Asiello. Joining me now from New York City, it's Michael Asiello. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I feel like I've known you forever, although we don't know each other really, but we're just, I've just seen your byline forever. And we were, you know, magazine, we got into that around the same time. I would always see your byline. I'd always read your juicy um, items and, like, you had good scoops. Uh, you, you, and you probably still do. Um, I, I did have some good scoops, um, some legendary scoops uh, back in the day. Occasionally, I still break a nice piece of news. Yeah, I like it. What was your biggest scoop? What was the one where you were, like, in the middle of a thing? One of the biggest ones was when I revealed that... Juliana Margulies and Archie Punjabi did not shoot their uh, uh, Archie's farewell scene together, that a body double was brought in because the two actresses were having some issues behind the scenes. Yes, that's a bombshell. Even now I get like, oh, my gosh, that's that's major. Yeah, yeah that's a story that I think will have legs till eternity. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's such a, a weird, unprecedented situation. Yeah. Did you feel pressure around it when it blew up? Was it like, were, were you in the middle of something or was it you, you put it out there and that was it? Oh, no, it definitely wasn't a situation where I put it out there and that was it. As you can imagine, um, you know, a story like that uh, involving a big show and a number of uh, big actresses um, causes a fair amount of drama behind the scenes. Yeah. Especially when a story like that goes public. Yes. So, part of, you know, so... You know, part of it is me posting the story, and another part of me is navigating yes. a lot of behind the scenes and personalities and publicists and and um, you know and relationships and all of that. It's a whole thing. Well, we're here to talk about something else. We're here to talk about Spoiler Alert. It's a wonderful new film that is based on your novel or your your memoir uh, about your life. It's actually not a novel. It's it's your story. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was a novel. Honestly. Right. I know. It's 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 so um, heartbreaking and beautiful. And um, and you you lived it, and then you lived it again in the book, writing the book, and then you lived it again making the movie. Um, so congratulations, first of all, on the movie. It's it's wonderful. Um, they give you tissues on the way in. At least they did to my screening, and I I did need them. <laughs> Although I saved a few, uh, but yeah, I went through a few for sure. Oh. Um, how Thank we, you for the compliment. 
How would you describe the story of what happens to someone that knew nothing about it? Um, it's a story about a, of a long-term relationship on, you know, at the end of the day, uh, a, a long-term relationship that navigates, uh, some turbulence, uh, over the course of, uh, you know, 13 and a half years. Um, and, uh, you know, and then one of the biggest obstacles, uh, um, you know, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying, um, cancer, um, comes sort of at, at the end and it just sort of, um, you know, yeah, it's a, it's about, a, a, it's a love story about two imperfect people who found each other, um, and, and tried desperately to hang on to each other. I love it. Well, you wrote the memoir that it's based on, but you didn't write the screenplay. Um, Dan Savage and David Marshall Grant wrote the screenplay. Did you ever want to write the screenplay? Was that something you were interested in? I toyed with the idea. Like yeah. it crossed my mind. I thought about it and, um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, there's a benefit in someone bringing a new perspective to the story because this was never going to be a documentary. This was never going to be like word for word interpretation or, 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 um, dramatization of the book. Um, it was going to be something more cinematic. And, um, Dan and David, our two screenwriters had a, had a, a very sort of cinematic idea, um, to frame, frame this story um, through Michael's love of television and sort sort of tell it through that lens. And I, and I don't want to give too much away about that. Um, but you know, there's a certain device that is used where we, we show how television was something that got Michael through some very hard times. Yeah. And, and then it led to your career, uh, working for TV guide and TV line where, uh, where you're at now. Um, what was it like to be on the set? Cause you were an executive producer and you, were you there every day? I was, I was there every day, except one day when I got a really bad cold and, you know, obviously there was a lot of sensitivities around COVID. And even though I had tested negative, um, I think and anyone who was sick, uh, was advised to stay home. To stay away. Um, but, you know, also cause there could have been a false positive, you know, a false and false negative for the COVID test. And, and it was just, it was just a lot of, uh, um, concern about, you know, we, the production having to shut down because of uh, COVID or, or, or one of the actors getting sick. So, but anyway, it was just one day. It was just one day. When did you guys shoot it in the grand scheme of the COVID thing? What, what were the months? Last fall. So last fall. We started, yeah, we started last October. Um, and then we wrapped in early December, right before that massive Omicron surge. Yes. You beat Omicron. Like we, yeah. We wrapped production and then Omicron just like exploded. So we got it in just under the wire. Um, I went to a Q&A recently for uh, The Fablemans, the Steven Spielberg movie, and he was there. He, to he told the story about how he was on the set watching a scene that he lived of his parents fighting, and it was early in the shoot, and he got so emotional that he kind of finished the cut and then had to go off by himself for a while. And then the actors came up and kind of enveloped him from behind and, and kind of you know showed him that they were all there together and that it must have meant something. Did you have moments like that where you felt like, like the, a little overcome by, by what you were watching. It was your life that you had, that you had lived. I really didn't, you know, I was always aware that we were making a movie and I was always aware that these are actors playing roles. There were definitely times when I was moved by the performances I was seeing right. and would be overcome, but it wasn't that I was like, Oh my God, I'm reliving this moment in my life. And it's so painful. 
I never had that. Yeah, that's interesting. What were the moments that that struck you as super uncanny? Like, oh my gosh, um, Kit used to do that same thing with his eye, or whatever it is. Were the moments where you were like, wow, that that they nailed that. Yeah. So there's a scene um, at the uh, Jersey Shore, although we shot it in Long Island, but um, where you know, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a there's a scene where they they go on vacation and uh, and Kit is blowing bubbles and Michael is videotaping him. Um, and that scene was a shot for shot word for word replication of the actual moment that happened. Right. Because um, you had the video to reference. Yes. And I had that full video and, uh, I showed it actually, you know, some, it was scripted to be somewhat close to that, but not exactly. Um, and then the day, the morning we were shooting, it was God, it was freezing. We were in uh, Long Beach, Long Island, and it was late November, but it was freezing, unseasonably cold, so uncomfortable. And I, I remember thinking, I don't think Michael Showalter has seen the 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 video that inspired this scene and the right. video that I talked about, you know, that led to me talking about it in the book. So I was like, I'm going to play it for him before we shoot it. And he saw it and he was like, we're just going to do exactly that. Like literally, we're just going to do exactly that, and then we showed it to Jim and Ben. We made, I don't, they didn't see it in its entirety, and then basically it was just we recreated that exact moment. So that was that was uncanny. That was yeah. surreal, um, and uh, but also not like devastating in any way. Like I had to be walk away from the set. If anything, it was beautiful. Like it yeah. just felt like a beautiful tribute. Well, also, and it was one of those, it wasn't something you'd planned from the beginning. We're going to have to recreate this. It was like this kind of spontaneous, hey, what about, and then it just kind of grew into what Yeah, it, well, what we, always, we always knew there would be a version of that. Right. But I don't think any of us imagined that it was going to be uh, such a, a faithful recreation of the actual moment. Right. Uh, Michael Showalter is the director of this. And as I was looking through his credits, I was like, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love, like, the big sick. I love that for you. Like my favorite show of the year, the dropout, um, the, the eyes of Tammy Faye. Why do, why is this stuff so good? What is his thing? Well, his thing is that he manages to balance comedy and drama, um, better than most directors. And that's not easy to do. Like that's sort of his forte and, and the big sick really sort of put him on the map. For, for that kind of thing and balancing those those tonal shifts. The other thing is um, actors love working with him because he's incredibly collaborative and yeah. open open to their input and ideas. Um, and it just creates a very uh, sort of, um, it's just a very positive sort of teamwork kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Well, uh- your, your, his stuff is very funny, but you care. You care all the time. And there's these beautiful mo- scenes in this movie where the Michael character and Kit are just being with each other. There's not a lot of lines. They just look at each other. And there's two of them. And I think, these are so special. Why doesn't every romantic comedy or every romantic movie have these? I think people will yeah. go back to them and go, you know what? They, they, we have to do that thing that they did. Because it's it's so refreshing or something it was felt fresh to me i was like oh oh i felt it it's like that mexican restaurant thing you just it's just a feeling um can you talk a little about those scenes and how they came to be the way that they are 
Well, those are, those are some of my favorite scenes as well. And the Benny's burrito scene, which you reference, is yes. also is also pretty faithful to what actually happened. And you know, we had just gotten the uh, the, um, the diagnosis, um, the bad diagnosis, and you know, and and one of the things I talk about in the book, and it's like, and then you still have to go on and live your life. You still have to eat lunch right. after it. You know, you get the worst news of your life and then, oh, we still have to eat lunch. So we go to lunch and we go to our favorite restaurant, Benny's Burritos. Um, and we're ordering our food like we did a million times, but suddenly it's all different. Um, and it's all just so loaded and, and weighty. And then, you know, kid just started taking my picture. Yeah. Um, and I, I was not happy about it. I was like, I'm feeling very vulnerable and raw and, uh, the last thing I wanted to do was to have a camera in my face, but you know, Kit, Kit is a magician when it comes to photography and there's just something beautiful when he picks up a camera and, um, I acquiesced and I was just, okay, I'm going to just sit here and you do what you want to do. And, uh, and he just took a series of photos of me in that moment. Um, and then I had I'd done something that I had never done before because, um, I wasn't a photographer and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I would be very insecure about taking any kind of photo in front of kid, especially using his camera. But, you know, I picked up his camera. I just felt like, you know what, this is, this is, I was just feeling it. I was like, I'm going to do the same thing to you. I'm going to pick up my camera and I'm going to photograph you in this moment too. And it was really just this, us taking pictures of each other. And, um, and again, that was, you know, a conversation I had with, uh, Michael Showalter and, um, you know, it's something that David and Dan put in the script and, um, something that I remember when we were shooting it, some folks were like, is this going to work? Because there was no dialogue. And, and, right. and I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a big swing because it's not something you see in movies that often. I'm so happy it's in there though. Cause it's one of my favorite moments. Well, it, it's just so beautiful and it's so powerful and you could see people on the creative side going, wait, somebody should say something profound or something funny. They need a line. They have to, they just can't sit there, but yeah, yeah, they can't, they just can sit there. And the actors fill it with so much heart and, and their chemistry is great. And I, I love those moments. And I feel like it'll be a reference point for other people making movies like this. Um, Jim Parsons plays you yeah. and mm-hmm. you, you have an, a relationship with him from, from journalism, from interviewing him and stuff like that. How did it come to be that he was playing you and, and optioning the book? Well, yeah, so I have been covering Big Bang Theory at um, TV Line and Entertainment Weekly before that for its 12-year run. So I would, you know, see Jim at red carpets and award shows, and he came into our studio a couple times, and I would do interviews with him, and we had this really fun rapport. We, we weren't friends, but we had a professional right. relationship that was very enjoyable. Yeah. And... When my book came out, I also knew that he was an openly gay actor. So when my book came out and I was looking for um, folks to moderate Q&As with me around the country, um, I immediately thought of him because, again, of our rapport. But also, he's a famous actor. And I, I, was, I am not a, necessarily a famous person. And I was, I was insecure. Is anyone going to come to these Q&As? that I'm going to do, you know, and it's like, so, well, they're going to fucking come if I have Jim Parsons moderating. The yeah. Yeah. So, so I had, you know, a little bit of an agenda there. And, of course. Um, but, at the same, but at the same time, I knew it would be fun. Um, I knew it would be fun. 
And so I approached him, asked him if he would do it. And without even reading the book, he instantly said yes. Um, and then he finally got around to reading the book. I think it was while he was on vacation. He was on vacation with his husband, Todd, um, shortly before the Q&A. Um, and then, you know, he's told this story before, but uh, Todd was the one who, who because uh, he read it too, and was like, do you think this is a movie? And, and, and Jim was like, I don't know. But anyway, it was backstage at this Q&A at Barnes & Noble. The week the book, is, the book, I think the day the book came out, um, Jim and I are like, we're, you know, we're shooting the shit backstage and Todd is there too. And um, Todd mentions to me, like, we want to option this book, like in this moment. And there was never any discussion of it before. And I hadn't had any conversations um, about the book being optioned. Again, all my focus was just on the book coming out. Um, so he drops this bomb on me right before Jim and I walk out on stage. And um, that was the best kind of bomb because it was the ultimate confidence booster and the uh, ultimate compliment about the book. It made me yeah. feel really good about the book. Yeah. Because it was like, not only do they love the book, they think it's a movie and they want to make the movie. Right. They want to get involved. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's what got the ball rolling. How did Focus Features come to be involved? Because they're, they're so prestigious and they just put out such great stuff. I just, like if, if somebody said, oh, this is a Focus Features movie, I'm like, great, I'm in. Like I'm already, it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval. So how did that happen? Yeah, so, you know, what, what happened was just, so Jim's comp- Jim and Todd's company, that's Wonderful Productions, optioned the book. And then um, we found a director, we found Michael Showalter. So we sort of put, put this package together and then you take the package out to the different studios to see who's interested. Right. We always knew we wanted, we didn't want to go with the independent movie route. We want, we thought, we thought there's, there's a lot of really strong pieces here. We, we, we're going to, we're going to go to a studio. Um, and then we started pitching it to the studios and like the mini majors. Like, I don't want to say who else we pitched it to, but the obvious, to the obvious people that, that would be, yeah, in yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but we all really had a really good sense about the focus meeting. And also because of their storied sort of back catalog, you know, broke back. Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. 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 I mean, so many, they just have such a great track record with movies like this that, um, I think our heart was like, you know, we, we felt like this was a focus movie and, um, thankfully they, you know, they, they wanted it. Right. Sally Field plays Kit's mother, and she's great. What surprised you about her? I don't know that anything really surprised me about her. She brought her dog to the set every day. That was surprising. <laughs> what kind of dog is it? I, a little dog or a big dog? It's a little dog. It's a little, it's like a little puppy. It's a little like puppy. A little, yeah. Like a chow or something. I don't know. Sure. Something like that. I'm, I'm bad at identifying um, this. Sure. But I'm sure it's online somewhere. But she, every day she had that dog on the set, and it was, really, it was just really sweet seeing Sally Field, you know, coming to set with this little dog next to her. Um, and sometimes she'd be like off in the corner, you know, you know, when we're setting up a shot or whatever, reading on her iPad and her dog is on a chair right next to her. Um, just something, you know, really sweet. Um, but I mean, all the, nothing surprised me because I, you know, she's a, she's a fucking legend. Right. And, and watching her work, you see why she's a legend. She brings so much truth and honesty to everything she does. Um, and if she can't find that truth and honesty, she's going to have a conversation with Michael until she gets to a place where she can, right. she's not going to, she's not going to phone it in. She's never going to phone it in. Wow. That's impressive. Um, Bill Irwin plays Kit's father. And I, I understand that both Bill and Sally have gay children. Um, 
was that something that was ever talked about or was just something that, that resonated as you were making the, the story? Yeah, I mean, it was something we were all aware of. I know Bill and I would talk about it, um, like, uh, on the set. We would have conversations about it because I was not aware, aware that Bill had a gay son. I knew that Sally had a gay son. I, I'm actually friends with him, um, Sam. But uh, I think, I don't you know, it's not something that, you know, was made too much of a big deal about, but I'm, it was something that I believe, um, and I don't think I'm talking out of turn because Bill and Sally have said this, informed the performances. Sure. And it made them a little more um, drawn to the project, perhaps, because it's something yeah. they related to. I liked how honest the movie was about sex. Um, I liked that they weren't the couple weren't always on the same page around it, um, and it didn't. It wasn't one of those movies where, and then we kissed and everything went great. Like it was so smooth sailing. Why was that important to you to write about and then to to see in the movie? Well, when I set out to write the book. I wasn't interested in sugarcoating our relationship um, and and sort of softening the edges of who we were. Uh, I didn't that didn't in, that didn't interest me. I felt like there was m- many of the things that I feel like were special about us were were the, the, the things, were our differences. Um, and so many of the reasons we worked were because we were, we were so different. Um, but we were not a perfect couple. We were not perfect people. Our relationship was not a traditional fairy tale. Um, but it was real. And I wanted, I don't, I, I hadn't seen or read a lot of stories about those, those kind of like just sort of raw, real, um, complicated gay relationships. And, um, that was our story. And if I was going to tell our story, that was going to be a part of it. Um, and from the get go, everyone, Jim Parsons, Michael Showalter, uh, they were interested in telling that too, the messiness of the relationships. Um, and then what happens when cancer comes into the equation, what happens to all, all of that messiness Does, you know, in some ways it gets messier and some things it gets less messier. Um, but we all, you know, every, we were all on the same page in terms of this, these are flawed people and we're going to lean into that. One of the themes that I took from it was that when it's life and death, the things that seem so important, sex, monogamy, all of that, like jealousy, like they sort of melt away and you're left with just the love, right? And your, your character, does, there's just generous moments around the characters where, where they've let some of that stuff go. Um, and that, that, those were the moments that I found surprisingly moving, I think, because you don't often see that depicted so vividly. Um, well, you know, one of the things, you know, that occurred between Kit and I in, during those 11 months was, you know, just a level of honesty with each other that didn't exist before. Um, and also through that honesty comes healing and forgiveness. Uh, and that was one of the great blessings of that terrible fucking year was that we had this reckoning and put all our cards on the table. And at the end of the day, all that mattered was that we loved each other. You guys met in a nightclub. Is there a song that you remember? God, I don't, I wish I did. That's I, remember okay. a lot about, I remember a lot about that night. And what do you, you know, remember? 
It, well, it was not a nightclub, actually. It was Webster Hall. You oh, know, right this on. Iconic, this iconic space in, in New York City that was hosting a uh, a dance party, essentially, but um, that started out as a as an event um, advertising different gay sporting leagues. So it was called the Sports Ball. Right so basically, on. the first hour or two of it is like, you know, gay volleyball, gay football, um, gay baseball, you know, all having these tables and, and passing out flyers and trying to recruit new members. Um, and then like any gay event, you know, it all builds to a dance party. Um, <laughs> right. But it, was, uh, it was two months after 9-11, and my, my friend Matt and I, you know, I had been a, a recluse after 9-11. Like sure. Matt, you know, because the anthrax scare came right after it. It was just like no one wanted to go out. No one felt like celebrating or partying. But um, but two months after 9-11, we started, I saw flyers for this sports ball thing in Chelsea. Um, and uh, I was like, you know what? This seems like maybe the kind of thing that will get me out of the house. Um, yeah. Hot gay athletes. Sure. Convening, convening in one space at the same time. Um, that, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, so, so Matt and I went, went to the, the gay sports ball at Webster Hall and, uh, I saw a friend of mine there, a, a, another gay friend who I hadn't seen in a while who happened to be with Kit. So when, in saying hello to this friend, um, I, uh, he introduced me to Kit and then instantly there was just this connection. Amazing. Wonderful. Um, uh, ben Aldridge plays Kit. He's a British actor that we know from Fleabag. I saw him with you at a Q&A for Outfest a few weeks ago, and he said something in the Q&A that really struck me, because uh, he, he came out relatively recently in terms of publicly, and he said that he got tired of, like, he felt, he felt constricted, I guess, as an actor. He, I, I'm, I'm getting this wrong, but I just remember he talked about a, a feeling of liberation, that he was finally able to sort of bring everything to his, his work. And drop his guard. Can you talk a little bit about Ben and and if you have any memories of, of what he said and and why I think I might find it so striking? Um, well, I think what I do, you know, he he it was a, he was talking about it being just a liberating thing to be his true self on a movie set playing a gay man. Right. Um, it's also talking about how nice it was to be in on a gay film playing opposite another gay man depicting this gay relationship. Um, he, he was talking about how he really just appreciated all of, all of that. It just felt special. Um, and Jim, Jim recognized that too. Um, but Ben, Ben is, you know, Jim doesn't really look like me. I think it's fair to say Ben looks like Kit though. Um, not, not like a dead ringer way, but, you know, certain angles you get, Ben, you see Kit and, you know, friends and family members of his also, uh, see it. And it's why I think many of them have a very emotional reaction to seeing the movie because it is like Ben brought Kit back to life in some way. And, you know, part of that is just the physical, um, sort of resemblance, but a lot of that is also just... Ben has like a kit like energy to him and it it's it's beautifully surreal um and I think you see it in that that bubble scene that I referenced earlier um that's where you really see it most it's like he's so kit in that moment yeah and kit's a kit was a photographer um do you do you have his pictures around that he took a lot or do you have favorites or What's your relationship oh, wow. now to his photographs? 
they're everywhere. They're everywhere in, in both my, uh, in, well, especially in my New York apartment here. Um, and, uh, I mean, he was a brilliant photographer and I don't, I don't think I fully appreciated or maybe anyone fully appreciated how talented he was until after he was gone. And we really started to just look at his work because he was very shy about sharing his work. He was confident about his abilities as a photographer, but he was very, he, you know, he had an insecurity about himself and, 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 you know, there's a certain vulnerability that comes with putting your, your art out into the world. Um, but after he died, you know, I held, I held an exhibit, um, featuring some of his photos, uh, specifically the photos he took on his last trip to his hometown of Murrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, it was at this exhibit, just looking at his work, it just, it re it just hit me how each photo he took was a story. Um, and it was a funny story, but it was also a sad story. It was a snarky story. It was like, there's just so much going on in each photo he took. Um, and I, even now I just look at his art and I'm like, I have this new appreciation for it. Um, and that the photos, his art is everywhere in that movie. Um, I love that. It's, it, it's in, it's in all of the, the apartment sets that, that we shot. Um, and, Everybody, cast, crew, fell in love with his art. In fact, there was, you know, a, a bit of a face-off when we wrapped production and who's going to get which piece of Kit's art off the wall because everybody wanted it. Um, Michael Showalter particularly was just so enamored and, and um, became such a fan of Kit's photographer and reached out to me about certain shots he wanted the uh, originals from so that he could, you know, blow them up and put them on his, uh, in his home. Beautiful. What, what kinds of things would he photograph? Like, like, uh, people or Objects. landscapes? He was, no, no. He was a still photographer. Right. So he, he never took, he didn't like taking pictures of people because he couldn't control them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Interesting. He was, still, he was a still photographer. Yeah. Um, so his job, when he died, he worked for a vintage furniture, um, store, a company called Wyeth. Um, you know, and he would be photographing, you know, these, you know, $60,000 vintage sofas. Um, and he was so in his element, uh, and he, it, you know, and, and it, the furniture was art, but his photos of the furniture was especially art. Um, and you know, it really, that he was just so in his element. He loved that job so much. I love that. Um, watching the movie, I often wondered what kind of a caretaker I would be if I were in that situation that you were in. What surprised you about that experience? Did you, because I think, would I rise to the occasion? I like to think that I would, um, but sometimes I don't know. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows until they're in that situation. Right. I, I will say, though, that you find out how much you love someone in situations like that because, um, like, with Kit, when it happened, when he got sick, it was never something I pondered. It right. always was instinctual. It was habit. It was like, I am going to do everything I can to take care of this person, to, to advocate for him, to make sure he's okay. It was instinctual. I just, you didn't I have started. to, you didn't have to ask yourself. You just did. Right. So, so, and I, but I think a lot of, there are times when, when it's not that easy, when, when it is like maybe someone you're kind of friendly with, but maybe 
you know, it's, you know, you're not as close to them as maybe you thought you were. Well, right. you'll find out how close you are to them or how much you love them or how much you need them in a situation like that. Um, and I certainly did find out how much I loved and how much I needed Kit when he got sick. What did you learn about yourself or about life? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I learned a, a lot. I, um, I think, I mean, I learned that I'm a good caretaker. Like I'm a good care. I was a good caregiver. Like I, I that, so, cause Kit, Kit's type of cancer, you know, it, there was just, it was very, it involved a lot of work. You know, he had a colostomy bag, you know, and, 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 um, he had a lot of difficulty walking. It was just, it, it was physically, there was a lot to do as a caregiver. Um, and I was surprised at how naturally all of that sort of came to me. Like I'm, I'm sort of like the idea of like changing a colostomy bag, you know, you know, it's kind of a complicated process. And I think I would see like, before this happened, I'd be like, I'd never be able to do that. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Right. And then, and then in the situation, um, you're like, it was like, I'm, I have to do it. Yeah, give I'm me this thing. This goes there. That goes there. You just get on with it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I probably learned how I was maybe stronger than I, I think I maybe gave myself credit for. Um, I think my, my, you know, my mom died of cancer. My dad died of a heart disease a couple of years after my mom and so, you know, I dealt with a fair amount of loss in my life. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, I, but that didn't cause me to run away from this. If anything, I think it made me run toward it even more mm-hmm. having been through those experiences, um, and not having been able to be a caregiver to my mom. Cause I was only, you know, 15, 16 years old. Um, so I think a little bit of it was like, I'm, I'm going to do for Kit what maybe I wasn't able to do for my mom. Interesting. Um, you've done some screenings of this and I'm sure people come up afterwards. It's very moving. Are there any reactions that stand out? Um, I, well, I can tell you a reaction that stood out about the book. One that really stands out. One of Kit's doctors, the, actually the doctor who did the initial biopsy on his, uh, rectal tumor, um, um, the one who sort of gave us the first sense that this was bad. Yeah, the one that wasn't like sugarcoating it, at least in the no, movie. No, 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 it's not that one. Oh, okay, no, a different no, one. No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Yeah. So this is this is that's a different one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Literally, the first person who did the biopsy. Right. Um, his name is Doctor Penzer. Um, he's a, a gastrointestinal doctor, and he uh, he delivered the news to us in sort of a a chilly way. And I talk about it in the, in the book and specifically, you know, he used the word I'm concerned about Christopher, which is his kid's full name was Christopher his legal name. And that's what doctors mostly knew because that's the name was on the chart. But, um, it was just, it was a, a very bl- blunt and chilly and cryptic sort of description that haunted me for the week between the biopsy and when we found out what it actually was. And I get into that about all, all that anxiety um, and, uh, and anyway, so when the book, book came out, I, I sent one to Dr. Penzer and he read it and immediately sent me an email and said how moved he was from it and how, how much it opened his eyes about the patient perspective and how he is going to change the kind of doctor he is as a result of it. 
that was incredibly powerful and moving to me. Um, because I don't want anyone else to go through what Kit and I went through. And if, you know, obviously people are going to get sick, but we, you know, we struggled a lot with the, the, the medical piece of it was really hard because this is a very rare cancer and there wasn't a lot known about it. And there was, there was just, it was, it was just very difficult. Um, and he, he just really, he saw it as a resource. I think he said, this is a must read for anyone who is going into medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, because I'd be nervous to send it to him because you kind of, you know, it's not a glowing review for him. Well, but no, but he does, he comes off okay in the book. It's not like he didn't do anything wrong. He was honest, honest, but, but it was just, um, what he was able to see was what happened when, when we go home right. after that hospital visit and what's going through our minds and, and how something like I'm the words I'm concerned about yeah. Christopher are stuck in our head forever. Like I will right. never forget about that. In fact, in the movie, the doctor, the way it was ri- originally scripted was not, I'm concerned about Christopher. And I, I went to Michael Showalter uh, on the day of, and I was like, I really feel strongly that, this doctor needs to say I'm concerned about Christopher because there's something unusual and specific and terrifying about those words rather than something more sort of cliche, like we, we found a tumor. We're going to do a biopsy. We'll see. The the second you hear, I'm concerned about Christopher. You're like, we're fucked. Like there's something about those, that those four words, it's just like too formal by half or something. And you're like, "Mm," it hits, right? It's terrifying. Yeah. Now you're the president and uh, editorial director of TV Line, and you worked for TV Guide for a long time. And TV is a big part of this film. And um, I worked for Entertainment Weekly for uh, three years between TV Guide and TV Line. I, I know all of my favorites. Yeah. I grew up when that fall TV preview guide would show up at the house. I would lose my mind. I would highlight it. I like so, and I did some freelancing for TV Guide, which was a thrill. Um, and so it, it felt like was a, that was that was my hustler. Yes. It was, my hustler. That might be the title of this podcast. I always pull a quote. Um, yeah. It, so what did it mean to you to, to end up there? Because for me, writing freelance for them, um, I did some stories. I got to go to the, I did the Will and Grace cover story for the first time, which was like a dream come true. And like, just what was it like for you to be at TV Guide? Because you, you were there uh, on staff full time. A dream come true. Yeah. I started freelancing for them when I was at, uh, my first publishing job, Soaps in Depth, uh, which was a new magazine at the time, which now sadly no longer exists. But um, Jonathan Reiner, who I knew through the soap world, was working at TV Guide. It was called TV Guide Online. It wasn't the magazine. It was TV Guide Online, not even TVGuide.com. It was so early in the, in the sort of the infancy of the internet that it was online was in the title, TV Guide Online. Um, but anyway, uh, I became obsessed with Felicity. So I started pitching him stories about Felicity because that wasn't something I was going to be able to write about. In right. Soap opera yeah. Um, and he was, he was all for it. And that afforded me the opportunity to get on the phone with Terry Russell and J.J. Abrams. And this is J.J. Abrams before he was J.J. Abrams. Right. Um, but uh, so, and then to see my, my name, it wasn't in the magazine because it was online, but still to be associated with this brand that was so iconic and so meaningful for me growing up yes. was incredible. And then to work there, um, and to walk into those offices, uh, it was n- never sort of not a pinch me moment. And I felt the same way when I went to Entertainment Weekly, because that was also uh, a, 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 um, a magazine that I 
absolutely worshipped. Um, and that was from the beginning. Like I was, I, I was in on the ground floor of Entertainment Weekly. I wasn't alive when TV Guide first came out, but Entertainment Weekly, I, I was there from its birth to its death. And, um, and when I got a, the job there, I just, I couldn't believe it. I, I still, you know, when I think about it, I still can't believe I, I was lucky enough to work there. Well, maybe you share this. I'm so grateful that I got to be a part of that in the golden age of magazines. Like, yeah. I got to do it when I did it. And sometimes I, I, there were times where I felt bitter, like, oh, it's gone. My career went away. My, my field went away for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, then I go, no, I got to do it when it was great. When you could yeah. really, you know, there were the long profiles you got to write, all of it. So, um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm sure we, we could um, compare notes about uh, interviews. <laughs> I liked the scenes where Michael was working. I felt like they all felt authentic to me. Like, the preparation, what he was doing. Does it ever bug you in movies where there's a journalist and they're like, you're not taking notes. You're not recording this. Like where they don't get the, the workaday parts. Right. Do you ever go, wait, that's not right. She would be recording that. Well, so, I mean, that's one of the things that I was a little bit of a stickler about. Yes. Because this is a movie about television. This is a movie about journalism and and a television journalist. Um, And I know when I'm watching movies about journalism or movies that claim to be, you know, about a certain subject matter. And I'm like, they don't know the subject matter that they claim to be focused on. Like that is not how journalism works. Um, Or, you know, uh, there'll be like a television, like they'll be talking about television and and I'll realize, well, they're talking about a television show that didn't exist when this movie was on. You know, it's like, I'll put all of that and it'll take me out of the movie. Yes. Trust me and the movie is broken and I, I can't get it back. Yeah. Um, so I was always like, would catch things and be like, no. And sometimes they're little things. So it seems like I was being nitpicky, but the reality was like, no, people coming to this movie are going to know TV or, or not all of them, but some of them are, and they're going to catch it. Yeah. We get this stuff right. We got to get the TV stuff right. We got to get the journalism stuff right as much as possible. Yeah. Like in spotlight, Rachel McAdams took a ton of notes and I'm like, yes, write down those notes. Take, you know, scribble away, Rachel. Um, we're going to wrap it up soon, but I wanted to um, make sure I got the date right. It's opening nationwide on December 9th. That's right. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So December 2nd, um, last Friday, yeah. um, uh, it opens in select cities, New York, LA, San Francisco, but then this coming Friday, the ninth, it will be everywhere. Right on. What have you learned about moving on, persevering? Cause, cause you, you, it seems like you've had to do a fair amount of that in your life. Uh, ongoing process. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's not something that, uh, there's any easy answer to, or that, you know, one day it's just going to be like, Oh, I'm ready to move on now. Um, it's an evolving process, you know, in some ways, you know, it's going to be eight years with kid is dead and, I can't believe it. It's been that long. And um, some ways I have moved on in some ways I probably haven't in, in ways that I'm not even fully aware of, you know, and then it'll come up in my weekly therapy sessions, you know, to be like, Oh yeah, I'm still hanging on to that. Um, I will say that, that one of the things this, the book and that the movie has allowed me to do is hang on to Kit in, in a way that I think most people aren't able to, when they lose a spouse, uh, he has been a part of my my, my life, my, my, my personal emotional life, but also my professional life now, um, for, for so many years. Um, and I'm a little afraid of what happens when, you know, 
we get on the other side of the movie and there's no more spoiler alert. Yeah. You know, what next? Well, well, not even, but there's what next, but they're more of the letting go. Yeah. Um, and being like saying goodbye to Kit again. Um, and, and that I'm, I'm bracing myself a little bit for, uh, and again, maybe it'll be fine, but, um, and maybe I'll be fine with it. Maybe I'll welcome the, 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 the opportunity to, to move on. Um, but there's a part of me that, that worries that, um, maybe I've been hanging on to him through this experience. Yeah. It's, well, it's, you know, you've had these amazing things happen. The relationship happened, the movie happened. And I think there's a part of it that's like, well, great things can happen. Like that's one lesson, even if, even if they end at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I, I, you know, one thing I will say is that, you know, you're talking about the great things that are happening and something that I've struggled with throughout this process is, you know, especially we had the premiere last Tuesday, which was just an incredible night. Yeah. Everyone looked amazing, by the way, Uh, all the great outfits, great outfits. Um, and, uh, it was super exciting, but it was fraught for me as all of the big moments in this process have, because, it all comes back to the fact that this all happened because someone died, you know, and and all of this was born out of a tragedy. And I feel the weight of that tragedy all the time. Um, And it particularly hits me, I think in the the high points of the process, um, because it's not, not complicated. It's not like, it's not like I wrote Harry Potter and then it became a movie and I'm at the premiere and I'm like celebrating this, not this incredible world that I had created. This is a real story involving someone who I loved and lost. Um, and now it's a piece of entertainment. Um, so I struggle sometimes with balancing the fact that yes, this is an incredible tribute to him, but it also is a, a piece of entertainment. Um, and reminding myself, um, that, and just trying to reconcile those two things. Yeah. Final question. Do you have a favorite moment in the movie? I have a couple favorite moments. Um, you know, without giving too much away, there's a moment toward the end. I, I talked a little bit about the healing and the forgiveness and laying all your cards out on the table. There's a moment at the end where um, that's very focused on those themes. Mm-hmm. And it also is, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, you know, one of those very sort of quiet, scenes where it's just two people existing it's not a lot of dialogue and there's a lot happening in in the silence that's my favorite that's my favorite scene that was my one of my favorite days of shooting um and also part of it is because it's so faithful to the actual experience of that moment yeah and Um, it and and as a viewer, I think I know what you're talking about. And it says something true about the world. I, there's something that I just feel it, you know, thinking about it even now. Um, congratulations. Thank you for the conversation. Um, everyone needs to go see Spoiler Alert. Uh, it's a terrific movie. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for your support of the, the film. I really appreciate it. And someday we'll have to go to coffee and talk about interview stories and celebrities and journalism and publicists and oh, all yeah. of it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Bye. Take care. Thanks again to Michael Asiello. Go see his movie, Spoiler Alert. It opens nationally on December 9th. It's wonderful. You will love it. Um, okay, so this happened. Um, I had a podcast guest on this on this show, I don't know, four or five years ago, seven years ago, a long time ago. Anyway, a friend of mine named Andrea Carla Michaels, and she um, 
writes crossword puzzles for the New York Times and other outlets. And every time she has a puzzle, she sends it to me, and I save it on my computer. And um, I like to do crossword puzzles, but I hadn't done them in a while. And so a, a couple months ago, I got all of the emails that she sent me, all the puzzles, and printed them out, put them on a clipboard, and I put them in the bathroom. So I started doing crossword puzzles when I go to the bathroom. And um, I'm so into it. Like, I've always liked them, and it was so fun to talk to Andrea about how they came together and how it works and, you know, what do you get paid if you do it for the New York Times, all of that stuff. But I've really become a big fan of doing them. And here's something I've learned. You get better the more you do them. Like, I've gotten better at them. Of course, you learn what those four-letter words are or whatever, but it's a way of thinking that's kind of surprised me. And once in a while, I'll get stuck on a puzzle, and then I'll flush the toilet and go away, and then I'll come back, and I'll see it in a different way, and I'm like, oh, that's what they mean by that clue, and I'll do it. So anyway, I'm having a crossword renaissance, all thanks to my past podcast guest, Andrea Carla Michaels. Um, You can find her in the archives if you're interested in how that works, crosswords and getting published and all of that stuff. But it's just been a really fun thing, and I think it's good for your brain. I've read that somewhere. So anyway, that's enough for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes, JB Bercy for his additional technical support. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!